So I, I don't like the concept of precision medicine. As a, as a data person, precision has a very specific definition. Um, and so for me, that, that's it's, it's a horrible word. Uh, I, I, I like personalized medicine a little bit more, uh, but really my favorite word in this space is stratified medicine. You know, and for me, stratified medicine perfectly captures where a lot of medicine needs to go. It's about understanding the, that a human isn't an average and that they are part of many stratifications. Welcome to the Personalized Medicine Podcast. This is the place where scientists, clinicians, and entrepreneurs discuss the progress of this rapidly developing field. I am your host, Alexander Yahensky. Let's start. Three, two, one, and we are live. Welcome to the next episode of the Personalized Medicine Podcast. Today, we are going to have a very special episode. I'm joined not by one, but by two amazing guests. It is my pleasure to introduce to you the two co-founders of Ocker Bio, Jack O'Mara and Quinn Wills. Together with Jack and Quinn, we will talk about livers, drug development for metabolic diseases, and biotech entrepreneurship. I'm sure this will be a very insightful episode, so let's get started. Jack, Quinn, thank you so much for accepting my invitation and welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having us. Glad to be here. Perfect. Guys, I would like to start with your story. Can you tell a little bit more about your backgrounds? And most importantly, how did you guys meet? Yeah, happy to. Why don't I give a bit of a high level on the Okabio, maybe the vision of what we're trying to achieve, and then a bit about my own background, and then hand it over to Quinn for some of the genesis story of the science and how we really got off the, the ground. And then, Quinn, maybe you can give a bit of the, the meeting story as well. <laughs> so with that, Okrabio, we're a deep phenotyping company developing RNA therapies for chronic liver diseases, top 10 global killer. In fact, the only top 10 global killer that's currently on the rise. We use a lot of genomics to find new biology, and we built one of the largest genomic atlases of the human liver, and with it uncovered a host of 200 novel targets that our team in Oxford have been very busy validating and ultimately turning into siRNA therapeutic candidates. And one of the things that's a little bit different about us and our approach to drug discovery is that we go directly from identifying an siRNA to testing it in a whole human liver kept alive on a machine outside the body in partnership with transplant centers around the world. The thesis really being we want to keep our pipeline human relevant. We're making drugs for people, not mice. So although we do do humanized mice work, that's uh, our primary source of conviction around what drugs you want to move into clinical development is in the transplant or is in these whole human livers kept alive on machines. And the last piece of it is just the first program that we are moving forward towards the clinic with is in the transplant space. It's essentially pre-treating marginal or high-risk donor livers to improve outcomes for patients who receive them. But ultimately, we have big ambitions around building a portfolio of therapeutic candidates by amassing all of this genomic data relevant to new pathways to treat a variety of chronic liver disease indications. And that's very much the founding vision for the company. And so with that said, a very little on me, and then I'll kick it over to Quinn to give some of the genesis story behind Okobio. I'm originally a biomedical engineer. I uh, spent a lot of time in the lab, 
tissue engineering and playing with cell, cellular models, et cetera, but very quickly became frustrated with the lack of translational focus, particularly of European labs. You mentioned at the beginning uh, that there isn't enough companies like us in Europe, and I would tend to agree with that statement. Um, and there's less of a translational bent, I find, particularly in academe in, in Europe. So wanted to get involved in the, in, into the action, throw a roll up my sleeves, so moved to the US and worked for a variety of early stage health tech and life sciences companies before ending up at a, at a Vexus, which is the first big gene therapy product to get approved a couple of years back and help them get that over the finish line. And then wanted to get back closer to home and get kind of take some of that U- US entrepreneurial zeal back to all of the incredible deep science that Europe is so, um, so prone to produce. And I met Quinn and heard all about his research in liver and very quickly realized liver is the place to be. And I've been uh, enamored with it and really just all go for the past couple of years since. And we're, we're about t- almost just 20 people now. So we're pretty scaling up the organization and really kind of t- feels like we're at a moment of inflection, as they would say in the VC world and really taken off. So I'll stop there. And Quinn, maybe kick it over to you for a bit about the genesis and your own background and where we're, how we all got started. Mm, absolutely. Uh, <clears throat> I think probably, to, and this might answer some of the questions I think you might want to ask uh, later on, but you know, how we got into liver is really sort of how I got into liver many, many years ago. I'm, I'm a South African medical doctor and geneticist. And so we're talking pre-millennium. Um, so, of course, there's a still pre-human genome project. Um, but in those days, already very interested in the genetics of liver disease. Uh, mostly alcoholic liver disease, but you know all sorts, and um, have continued with all sorts ever since. But the sort of the growth for me as an individual was really with the Human Genome Project and becoming enamored, like so many geneticists, with new technologies and where big data is going. That I wanted to retrain, so I, I moved out to the UK, and so Oxford's been home for the better part of two decades now for me. Where, I, where I've done extra degrees in maths and computers and a PhD in systems genomics, which is very, very different from traditional uh, population genomics, uh, which we can get to in a later bit. But again, around liver, I, you know, really, um, you know, I'm driven by this incredible neglect for liver disease um, as a space and the need to understand new targets and new biologies. The problem is, uh, and this is a problem I began viscerally appreciating as as the head of genomics for one of the one of a one of the pharma companies was that there is really a whole value chain that needs to be addressed if you want to make a, a dent in the therapeutics world and it's not just about good basic biology and discovering new targets which we do a lot of but it's also about uh building the right models as jack said you know you don't want to cure liver disease in mice. Uh, And it's very frustrating when you find new human targets uh, and you're working in a big pharma company and their default is to stick it into an obese mouse, for example. So, you know, really didn't like that and didn't like the clinical trial space uh, for liver disease. It's very challenging. You know, cardiometabolic trials and liver trials are, are very similar in that regard, can be much tougher than cancer trials. You know, you really need large numbers of people, very long-term endpoints often, uh, lack of biomarkers to really uh, muddy the space. And so, you know, thinking around these issues was how we became involved in the, you know, these liver perfusions, so these transplant machines that keep livers alive outside of the human body. And the original idea was to solve 
that second part that I mentioned, coming up with better models. You know, we took human livers, put them on machines, uh, kept them alive, studied their metabolism, perturbed them, and realized that finally we have something that's better than a mouse model. But equally, sort of there was this growing realization, and this is how Jack and I got together, that when you look at the target biology that we're chasing in the chronic liver disease space, which is help livers not die, help them not become inflamed, help them not cirrhose, it's the same basic biology that we're chasing in the transplant space so that we could think around transplant clinical trials which don't need the same biomarkers, which have much shorter endpoints, etc., and use that as a mechanism um, to really get into a much bigger market. Um, and so, that, so that's the basic idea, you know, is bringing together lots of great technologies, but also being smart around how we properly address the value chain, you know. And, and so, so that was, I, I spent some time really thinking around that and how I want to do it and was frankly not massively keen on starting um you know i've I've started companies before i I didn't want to do yet another european biotech because you know (laughs) the money is often not as great and the vision is often not as great to be able to support that kind of thing but i um was contacted by one of the um london um incubators uh, you know sort of with a sell that you know even though the money might not be great up front one thing they can do is help find great founders uh, because that is one that you know that's another big sort of element of the success story in any company is getting the right initial team together and so sort of intrigued by that um i joined this accelerator program and that's how i met jack well we actually sort of met before i i I'd just come out of costa rica building uh, my dream treehouse and jack had just been in tanzania building huts and so we realized very quickly on a, on our first phone call that we're uh, equally crazy or not crazy uh, who knows but um that we share very similar ideas about value and value chains and the kind of company you want to build and where we want to go with this um and have been running ever since 100 miles an hour yeah when you're dead yeah and i guess guys like if it wasn't for biotech then probably your second industry choice would be construction (laughs) (laughs) i don't think we i think we'd be a lot less successful but perhaps yes (laughs) Cool. Quinn, you already mentioned kind of that uh, infamous accelerator in, in London. And uh, I actually also had a chance to go through Entrepreneur First myself uh, in Berlin. So I'm just curious, guys, can you describe that experience for you? How, how was it um, in terms of giving you guidance on like where to start? And um, yeah, what were your key takeaways uh, from, from that experience? I, I guess I, I think Quinn kind of summarized it quite, quite well. I mean, it was it was a fun experience. It was it was intense, um, but I think the real value it added for Okabio was bringing bringing the two of us together and helping with some initial seed capital and and providing a, a platform for us to be surrounded by other entrepreneurial people and kind of immerse ourselves in that type of energy. I think um, our chief frustration to some extent was it was relatively new to the biotech space, so it didn't have a ton of. Um, relevant experience in that domain and we did have a, uh, a few grumblings with them about the amount of investment they were giving us so, so we ultimately um, 
uh, headed to towards the west coast uh, relatively soon, uh, shortly into the into the program. But but I think all that said, I mean the they are doing a phenomenal thing for the European entrepreneurial ecosystem and really helping to grow it and, and having some real success in, in doing so. And, and yeah, I guess for anyone who doesn't know, it's a really interesting program. They, they call themselves talent investors. So they bring together people um, and try and help marry up uh, company builders that have very complementary skill sets. I think that's uh, a very useful endeavor. Quinn, do you want to add anything to that? No, that's it. It really is. That for me was the big win here. Yeah, they are. They really are. Every company has its own journey, but uh, there definitely seem to be certain patterns that play out. And one of the f- big patterns is get the right founders, get the right starting team. It makes all the difference. Yeah, and maybe just to touch on this complementarity thing, because I do think a lot of there's a there's a you need complementarity of philosophy and complementarity of of um, like goals for your company, which I think Quinn and I very much share. But the other thing that in entrepreneurs is very intentional about, which other accelerators might necessarily be, is complementary of skill set. Like I came from a very commercial uh, regulatory operations background, whereas Quinn was very deep science. So this the, this, the total difference in backgrounds really helps to fill all of the skill sets needed for, for a biotech company, where I think a lot of times spin-outs from different, you know, two PhD students, they know each other, and they're kind of very similar backgrounds. So I think that's, that is a tactically useful differentiating feature of Entrepreneur First. Perfect. Guys, and I'm curious what happened next. So, Jack, you mentioned then you moved briefly to the West Coast. Um, I guess you joined Y Combinator. So can you tell us a little bit more about your experiences there? Yeah, maybe I'll comment on the differences between the two, or maybe just some of the learnings we had there. And then, Quinn, if you want to add anything. I think one one of the things that we talk a lot about internally as an organization is the importance of speed in not necessarily a defense, but if you, you know, a company with twice as much money and half the science will probably do better than than one without. And and the only real alternative to having the capital to be aggressively chase a, 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 a strategy is to be just moving way faster than everyone else. And I think that's something that we really felt when we moved over to California was this concept, this urgency. It just was palpable and way, the level of urgency between the companies in Y Combinator was um, was really something to behold. And I think it's part of the reason why they just have such a uh, phenomenally prolific track record in producing very, very successful businesses. Is the, it, Irrespective of industry, speed is a, um, is a key feature and a defining feature for, for success in, in early stage company building, uh, I would think. But, and then the other thing is just the, the obvious second piece of that is, is capital. They, they, in California, there just is a, is a significantly more and significantly faster capital base that allows you to finish your financing process in a much faster turnaround time and then just get back to work and building the company and don't just spend all your time talking to investors about endless diligence that really isn't going to fundamentally change the trajectory of what you're trying to achieve. Um, Quinn, did I miss anything? Uh, I mean, 100% there. You know, one of the, one of the things... Uh, I, I think I was forced to unlearn this one in medicine, but I think that a lot of PhD scientists or PhD only scientists struggle with is this whole thing of moving fast. They see it as rushing, 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 rushing. Um, and it takes a while to get folks to really understand that, you know, unless the ship is moving, you can waggle the rudder as much as you want. You're never going to go in any one direction. There has to be motion there. You know, and there is some debate around, you know, at what points do you you do have active procrastination, etc. But for me, that's just nuance. At the end of the day, 
the overall principle is you just have to keep going and go fast. Perfect. Yeah, sounds sounds very insightful. And yeah, I guess there are big differences between uh, US and, and Europe when it comes to entrepreneurship. But guys, I'm very happy that you came back uh, to to Europe and uh, set the example for for other aspiring entrepreneurs who who are trying to move biotech forward here. And um, let's go back to Ogre Bio, uh, to your approach. So I'm really curious, how do you get access to livers uh, and uh, what type of experiments you can actually run on those livers that are kept ex vivo outside of the human body? Uh, with great difficulty, I think, is the answer to the first part. And with a whole lot of knocking on doors and ringing up transplant surgeons at all hours of the day to, to try and get a hold of them. Uh, to partner out on some of these these programs uh, it's been we, we've had great luck we've got a great team around us who work night and day to try and make this all happen in particular shout out to one of our, our heads of our heads of transplant programs over in the u.s who's been doing this for a long time now um but it is it is a case of of winning over hearts and minds in the transplant field to get behind the type of research and the type of impact we're trying to have as an organization through the use of have rejected donor organs in order to better study and better understand disease and ultimately lead to, to better therapeutics. But yes, with great difficulty in some way. But Quinn, you might want to add a, a, some scientific nuance to that as well. <laughs> well, in, I think Jack's hit the nail on the head with that one in, in many respects. It's always, it's always that like, comment that we make about science being easy, but people being hard. Um, I mean, the science is hard, but in many respects, a lot of what we've done as a company was de-risked before our birth as a company. So I already at that stage knew what we could measure on these livers in terms of the metabolic changes, the inflammatory changes, cell death changes, that sort of thing. So, so there was, it's still difficult and we're still learning about how far we can push these livers. Um, but a lot of that was there. You know, the really tough part was, was bringing it all together. I think if I had to comment on what is the, what we really had to deep think about is how do we do this at scale? Not just only connecting up to different centers, but all the way through our pipeline. Because, because again, as a company, we try to think about the whole value chain, not just being great at any one step. And um, <clears throat> that's where this concept of an in silico liver comes from. Yeah, we, we love complexity. In many respects, we're a complexity science company we study how genes and cells talk to each other and how that conversation changes with disease at a fundamental level that is what we're doing and we do it in these huge atlases that we build of the human liver we do it in our oxford and taipei labs where we're testing out different genes or combinations of genes in various models and human tissues and then we we're doing it again you know in in whole human livers that we keep alive for five days but the challenge there is trying to find, uh, trying to get that pipeline to work so that you're doing things at scale, but not sacrificing complexity. And the way the in silico liver works or the way the in silico liver will work when it matures later next year is that it uses all of this data that we're generating. So we sequence all the way through, whether we're doing atlases or perfusing human livers, and uses that uh, data to make predictions about genes so that when you start doing a workup, so for example, you want to test uh, 100 genes in some slices of human livers, um, you can do the experiment, you can sequence those livers, you can do the, the sort of the phenotypic workups of how the slices are responding, and then 
you project that data back into the Insilico liver with all the previous data and the machine learner wrapped around that, and it will tell you what it thinks is driving the biology, the results from those 100 genes, and from that, which are the next most 100 genes you might want to think about that are interesting, so that we don't have to just brute force our way through every target every time we want to study a new phenotype or a new version of an indication we want to think about. And so for us, that that is the uh, that was the challenge. It is still very much a challenge, but um, I think something that we're going to converge on quite nicely next year. Perfect. And Quinn, is there idea then to completely replace human liver with this in silico liver, with that in silico model, uh, where you could just make predictions based on the data that you've previously generated? Well, let me clarify a few things, because of course... Uh, functional genomicists have been dreaming about uh, in silico organs for a very, very long time. Uh, the reality is that they've always been horribly predictive. Uh, and they've been horribly predictive, I would argue, mostly because the technology wasn't there. You can't make great predictions unless you're working at the fundamental unit of the system. And the fundamental unit of the system, our system, is a cell. And so things like single cell sequencing and now spatial sequencing added to that, these technologies have allowed us to start answering those questions. The other thing I think that might people might misunderstand is that we're not building a mechanistic atlas in the sense of we're not simulating interactions or proteins spinning around. What we're doing is taking all the data at the right resolution, you know, in space and time to then make predictions of which targets explain the results. And that's, that's really a more informational model rather than, uh, you know, a purely mechanistic prediction. Cool, got it. We are doing this show for you and your feedback is very important for us. So if you have any suggestions or comments, would like us to cover a specific topic or recommend a guest, please write us an email to team at pmedcast.com or you can reach out to us on LinkedIn, Twitter or Facebook. Just type in Personalized Medicine Podcast and you will find us there. To download the show notes for this episode, visit our website pmedcast.com It's p-m-e-d-c-a-s-t dot com The show notes include guest bios, links to their most notable work and recommendations for additional reads on the topic of the episode make sure to check them out. And don't miss the next episode. Subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcasting platform. Give us a rating and leave a comment. It will help us make this show better. And now, let's get back to the interview. Quinn, I've heard that you use this very nice and interesting term that was very new for me, uh, phenomics. So do you mind explaining it to audience? Is it a combination of different omic technologies or what it is it? It's not a, it's not a term we made up, in fact. I'm, I'm, sad, <laughs> I'm sad to say. I wish we could say we claimed it. It's been around for a while, and it, it sort of emerged, again, out of the functional genomics field, it, almost in frustration uh, as a response to population genomics and sort of the, the amount of money and attention population genomics gets. And so let me explain to you what that frustration is and, uh, and then how we got to sort of bringing that term in-house. You know, the frustration with population genetics is that it is a very powerful tool. You know, I'm, it's, it's, you know I feel privileged to have great colleagues who do fantastic GWAS-type studies, you know, where they do big population studies and work out 
which variations, which mutations are connected to a disease. Um, the problem with all of that is nine out of 10 times there's nowhere near a gene. So you have no idea what's going on. But even if it is connected to a gene, it really doesn't give you anything in between. It doesn't give you the biology. And when we're talking chronic diseases like neurodegeneration or chronic liver disease in our space, that is the really important stuff. You know, which cell is it active in? Is it even active in the liver? Because you know, genetics doesn't give you that information. At what point in the disease process? You know, chronic liver disease plays out over decade scales. And a lot of these genes are playing out at different times. So is it a relevant target? Uh, and at what point in the disease process? So there's all of that that's just missing. <laughs> and is really not actually adding, uh, I would argue, as much value as people think in the target space right now. So that's where we come in with you know, single-cell sequencing, spatial sequencing, uh, machine learning wrapped around that to, at a tissue level, build models of what's going on. And that is the concept of uh, deep phenotyping, is really building up a very rich phenotypic model from molecular behavior, so the sequencing data, to the tissue behavior. We do a lot of imaging AI at a tissue level right up to the clinical level. So, for example, with that first big target discovery project that we did on the 1,000 human livers, we had about 150 clinical phenotypes that the model mapped to. And so we had this sort of very multi-scale model of what we think is going on and what would make for interesting targets. And that is deep phenotyping. Perfect. And Jack, I guess my next question will be to you. So where do you want to take this deep phenotyping model? Do you plan then to develop your own uh, drugs for specific diseases or use it more as a platform to collaborate with other pharmaceutical companies? We are very much in the full stack biopharma company. We, we think of ourselves as a therapeutics business. We, we don't want to license out technology or data or even targets per se. Uh, to, to larger pharmaceuticals. We want to generate evidence internally around what we think is going to be the most meaningful therapeutics for patients. And we want to take those therapeutics into the clinic and really prove out our, our thesis and our, our, our belief in, in them. So we are trying to build a, a full stack biopharma company, which I think is unusual in Europe as well, to your um, earlier points. Yeah, perfect. But I love the ambition and it should be this way, I believe. Great. And Jack, one more question. Quinn mentioned before that you guys run labs, not just in UK, but also in Taiwan, and you have a very international team. So I wonder how difficult is it to operate a multi-continental company that is still essentially a startup and just, just growing up? What is your experience with that? Yeah, I think we were kind of born in the era of COVID. So it felt a little bit natural to us to work primarily over Zoom, etc. Um, so we, we have been very aggressively expanding, really driven by the need to get access to some of the key inputs for our discovery. And that's on the on the target discovery side, liver tissue, such that we can build up these atlases that Quinn described and do this deep phenomic type work. And then also on the perfusion side, discarded donor organs so that we can test out and validate the therapeutic hypotheses and drug candidates that we develop to make sure they're safe and effective for patients. So that has been a lot of the, the motivation for such a rapid expansion. And in doing so, I think we've been serendipitous in, in a few ways. The, the Taiwan expansion was really an investment in, in people. A lot of our hiring philosophy is really about getting the best possible people into the company to, to drive 
our, our R&D or our drug development engine. And the person that's leading our Taiwan team is just a, a rock star uh, individual. And Quinn had worked with her at a past life. And we had a serendipitous opportunity to get access and partner with a number of the Taipei hospitals, as well as bring on a strategic investor in the area there and really invest, invest in someone who we thought could really deliver for the company. And she has been doing a fantastic job since. So we're very, very glad of that. And equally, yeah, the, in, on the U.S. side, where a lot of our perfusion work is, we found a great head of global transplant programs. who has been very busy setting up partnerships with us now across North America. We've, we're in five centers over there, I believe four or five and uh, a couple more in the uk so we've been quite aggressively setting that up and it's just zoom you know i mean i think that we all working remotely for long enough now to realize that it's it's once you've got good people uh, the technology is makes it makes life pretty straightforward yeah awesome yeah it's it's an inspiring story and as you said it is possible it is doable it's just a matter of finding the right people yeah you just have to forget about sleeping for <laughs> <laughs> Um, perfect. Uh, guys, what we do like to talk about on this podcast is uh, future. And uh, what we often ask our guests, uh, what are the three major developments that you would like to see happen or, or you see happening in your field over the next 10 years? So if you take metabolic disorders, liver diseases, what do you guys would like to see happening in 10 years from now? Yeah. All right. How about I start that one? Um, you know, it, well, it's sort of my 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 habit whenever I'm asked these questions is to, to be a little bit controversial. Why not? Right? Just to just to, to prod a little bit. Um, and I suppose maybe because we're on the personalized medicine podcast, let me be a little bit controversial about personalized medicine. Perfect. Or what I do and don't like about it, and how this maps to where we'd like to see things go potentially. Um, so let me start by sort of explaining words I don't like in this field. So I, I don't like the concept of precision medicine. As a, as a data person, precision has a very specific definition. Um, and so for me, that, that's it's, it's a horrible word. Uh, I, I, I like personalized medicine a little bit more, uh, but really my favorite word in this space is stratified medicine. You know, and for me, stratified medicine perfectly captures where a lot of medicine needs to go. It's about understanding the, that a human isn't an average and that they are part of many stratifications, you know, whether it is their genetics and ethnicity is a big part of that. And in the liver space, it is a very big part of that. You know, liver disease has very different trajectories based on ethnicity at the moment. Not only are we treating it badly, but when we are treating it, we're treating, you know, pale Western males. Um, so we need to get around that. And we're thinking a lot around that as a company. But also the, the grand stratifier, the one big stratifier that we all have to go through is age. Age is, you know, there's a very big difference between a young person and an old person. And aging medicine is sort of coming to the fore now. You know, well, we see it in the media now with, with all the West Coast types wanting to live wherever. But you know, beyond the hype and beyond, beyond some of the snake oil that plays out in the space is a very serious movement around thinking about our bodies you know, from our 40s onwards and what we need to do to make sure that we live to be you know, healthy 100-year-olds. And for us, really, the liver is at the heart of all of that. Oh, I just, I just made a pun. Um, but, um, you know... 
It is, it is where we'd like to see uh, a lot of sort of uh, healthcare go in terms of targeting metabolic phenotypes via the liver. And we hope we'll sort of be able to contribute to that as a company over the coming years. Yeah, perfect. I guess liver is a new heart. Yeah, I was going to say, we used to say liver is the brain of the metabolic engine, but now it's uh, liver is the new heart. I like it. Great. Jack, what about you? What are you looking for uh, in this field? I mean, tough act to follow. Uh, <laughs> I'll maybe speak from a, um, a commercial startup side. Um, I like this new movement of DeFi, you know, like distributed DeFi or distributed finance and like the way the world is going in that industry. I think in biotech, we're seeing a lot more exoduses from the major hubs to some degree. I think now is one of the best times in the past to be able to build a biotech outside of Boston or San Francisco, just because there is, you can run things virtually, you know, and there's a lot of incredible talent um, in these non, uh, non hyper concentrated areas. Um, so I'd like to see that continue. I'd like to see more capital flowing into new parts of the world and ultimately leading to more great companies being built that ultimately lead to more medicines getting to patients. Um, yeah, I'll leave it there. Perfect. Yeah, sounds fantastic. And let's hope all of this will happen. Guys, you've been inspirational to me, for many um, people in our audience, I'm sure. And which one advice would you give to young scientists uh, or maybe biotech enthusiasts who are thinking about starting their own company? Maybe let's make it more specific in Europe. Um, I'll go first, and then uh, I, I, I think I'll, I'll set up, I'll set up the, the next uh, quid drop answer. But my, my, my initial one, right? I'm gonna say, is, <laughs> I know, I know, I've got a good idea where Quinn's going with this one, and I'll set it up for him. So my answer is, and this is something I spend a lot of time, probably too much time doing, is trying to build networks between all of the different ecosystems. For you've seen this with this whole like DNI title up stuff. Like I want to bring knowledge and business culture particularly from the US, because where a lot of the great companies are built, but into Europe. And a lot of that is around speed, urgency, big thinking, also just ability to cross-pollinate ideas and very high networking culture. I think bringing all of that, those things and expanding your network in a really aggressive way leads to lots of serendipitous things happening that you, you, it's hard to quantify specifically as you build a company, but you'll end up finding... Um, unusual things will come from having a very wide-reaching network. And I'll set up the next piece in that you'll also get a lot of advice along the way, and you need to figure out... I'll, actually, I'll stop there. So th it's great for getting lots of inputs, lots of advice, and then, uh, uh, which is you know, up to you to th think through in more detail, but I'll stop there. And, and you've, you've, you've set that one up nicely for me, Jack. Thank you. <laughs> uh, correctly predicting what I was going to say. Um, you know, we do get asked this, and again, I like to be a little bit controversial, sort of in the in the latter questions of podcasts and whatnot. But uh, I, I think my advice is be very careful of the advice you take, potentially even mine right now. You know, I think one of the most difficult things to learn as an adult or as a grown up, never mind just as you know a, a scientist or entrepreneur, is um, is learning which advice to ignore and which which to take on board um, because you, you'll get a lot of authorities in the space. Uh, a lot of people think they know better from venture capitalists to entrepreneurs who've done it before. And, you know, very often it's just very difficult to know if their successes happen because of or in spite of their personal beliefs and advice, or if it has 
or it was very context specific and, you know, and has any relevance to your particular context. At the end of the day, nobody knows your space or your field or has the kind of commitment and ambition that you do. Um, so, and it doesn't mean be arrogant because there is a, there is the correct balance there, but that I think is a very difficult thing to get right. I'll maybe give you a good tactical example of that. Like I had a very urgent kind of uh, finance related thing come up this week and I have a, I've had some great advisors and mentors that have been close to the company and supporting it since the beginning. And I said, BCC, here's the situation. What would you do? Type of email. And I got four or five just completely opposing, you know, different perspectives on what so-and-so would have done or what advice they would give in that scenario. And I think that's the beauty of it. That's the, you, get, you ultimately need to be the one who makes the decision. That's your role as a leader or entrepreneur or whatever, you, whatever situation you find yourself in. But having all of those varied perspectives ultimately helps to challenge and helps to augment your thinking. But as Quinn alluded to, you need to be the decision maker at the end of the day. And no one knows your very specific nuance like you do. And that can be hard, especially when you're dealing with strong figures and authorities in the field. You know, it's very natural to be like, oh, they know better than I do because they've been doing this for 30 years. But that's often not the case. Perfect. Yeah, I love it. And that's not what we typically hear on this podcast when we ask this question. So, guys, thanks a lot for, for sharing this. Uh, I think it's yeah very important to, to have the ability and perhaps intuition to filter that input uh, that, that you are getting constantly from uh, all different sources. and. Uh, tweak it to your own situation and the confidence i think that's that's particularly something for people there in you know for first company founders etc is the confidence to know that you you are the authority in your company you're the one who's living and breathing and knows every different nuance to the situation definitely take people's input but think critically about it as well because people are particularly authorities i should shouldn't use that word so fluently flippantly but they you know, tend to have big, big, big opinions, strong opinions, very deeply held opinions, and they may not always be most relevant to your particular scenario. Yeah, agree. Perfect. Guys, before I let you go, one last question. Where can our audience find you online? All of the social medias. Uh, check us out on LinkedIn, Twitter. We're hiring a lot, so definitely take that on board and uh, reach out to jobs at okrabio.com. Um, but yeah, I think LinkedIn and Twitter are the best places to find us. Perfect. Yeah. And we'll put all the links into the show notes. Um, and guys in the audience, make sure to reach out to Quinn and Jack if, if uh, this story inspired you and you want to work on liver diseases. Perfect. Guys, thank you so much for, for this interview. This was amazing. I really love the energy. Uh, love your insights. Uh, it's been super insightful for our listeners, I'm sure. And uh, I'm looking forward to seeing uh, the progress of Ocker Bio, the amazing company that you are building, uh, and we'll stay in touch. Thank you so much for being with us today on the Personalized Medicine Podcast. If you like this show and know someone who would enjoy it too, please share this podcast with them. And don't miss the next episode yourself. Subscribe to the Personalized Medicine Podcast on your favorite podcasting app. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and many, many more. Please rate us there and leave a comment. That helps us to grow and deliver the best experience to you. To access the show notes for this episode, visit our website, pmedcast.com. It's P-M-E-D-C-A-S-T dot And engage with us on social media, where we regularly share the news and exciting content on personalized medicine. 
you can find us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook just by typing in Personalized Medicine Podcast. Or use our handle, PMATCAST. And if you have any feedback or would like to suggest a guest for the show, write us an email to team at pmedcast.com. Have a great day and until next time.